This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about the unique way a novel by Virginia Woolf has been adapted for the stage at the Rogue Theater. Explore a different side of desert geology through the poetry of Susan Cummins Miller. Adiba Nelson shares an excerpt from her new book, Ain't That a Mother? And Tucsonan Naya Arbiter is remembered by a friend. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This week, the Rogue Theater in Tucson is launching a new production based on a classic novel, Mrs. Dalloway. It was written by Virginia Woolf. Here to describe the production in two sentences and an interview, I'm joined by the play's adapter and director, Cindy Meyer, and lead actor, Cynthia Jeffrey. On a day in June, Mrs. Dalloway is preparing for a party. The complexities of mind, spirit... Decisions of past, present, and future all intertwine to flesh out the story. I've been in love with Virginia Woolf for about 40 years, and I find her prose absolutely gorgeous. The language is is beautiful. The following of human consciousness in her writing is just superb. And so I've, I've always loved her writing. Cynthia Jeffrey, um, when you first read this adaptation, what were your thoughts? Well, I started by reading the book. I found it very difficult to start with. Um, I felt like a student in a university class going, scratching her head going, what is this all about? And it was because of the style, which I'm sure Cindy's going to talk about in, in just a second, but there was no clear timeline. It, it seemed like her thoughts were skipping all over the place, present, past, future. As time went by, like Cindy Meyer, I began to appreciate how poetic her words were. And uh, sometimes I would sit and just read it aloud just to hear the sounds of the words, just to hear the, the patterning. And uh, pretty soon it just began to form a complete picture. And when I read Cindy's adaptation, I could see connections that I couldn't see before. I think for me, Mrs. Dalloway is the kind of book that should not be read just once to really absorb all of its nuances. So Cindy, you expressed your admiration for Virginia Woolf, but what kind of a challenge did this present for you as an adapter? What will you remember about the process of working on Mrs. Dalloway? Well, one of the most interesting things about the novel is that there's very little dialogue. And, of course, plays are entirely dialogue. (laughs) They're dependent. (laughs) Yes, yes. And so the challenge became how to turn narrative into something that's alive and interesting in front of an audience. And so a decision I made was to create inner characters. So the major characters have inner voices that are played by different actors. 
although that may sound confusing, it's actually pretty exciting. When you think of your own thoughts on any given day, we contain multitudes. There are lots of us, lots of individuals inside of us. And so turning that into a stage performance was really fascinating and fun uh, to play with. And I believe that your co-founder at Rogue Theater, Joe McGrath, is here. He's a performer in the play, and he's going to demonstrate. One of the major characters is Peter Walsh in Mrs. Dalloway, and Joe's playing Peter Walsh. And this is just a moment of him thinking aloud. Peter had been in love with Clarissa Dalloway when they were young, when they were in their early 20s. And he asked her to marry him, and she refused him. The compensation of growing old is simply this that the passions remain strong as ever, but one has gained at last the power of taking hold of experience and turning it round slowly in the light. Life itself, every moment of it, every drop of it, here, now, in the sun, in Regent's Park, is enough. But it was Clarissa one remembered. There she was. There she was. Cynthia, within this framework that Cindy just described, uh, what does it mean to you as an actor to be on stage and to have to work in concert with another person? That is a good question. Um, Because normally as an actress, when you're portraying your feelings, your inner thoughts, you're doing it yourself. But here you have to show or emote those feelings and thoughts physically while someone else behind you is actually verbally expressing those thoughts. So it was a challenge. It was a team effort, no doubt about it. You have to work with the other actors to get an idea of how they're going to say that that thought and how you're going to portray it physically for the audience. Cynthia, can you share with us a detail about Clarissa Dalloway that you were able to bond with as a performer, something that you found in common with the character? Cindy and I talked about this. We're now at a point in our lives where many of the experiences that Clarissa Dalloway Uh, is going through internally. You know, have I made the most of my life? Am I where I want to be? Have I made the right choices? Things like that just wouldn't have spoken to us in our 20s. But now that I'm I'm 62 this year, now that I have some life experience behind me, uh, many of the the thoughts and mood swings and confusion that Mrs. Dalloway is experiencing, I can completely relate to on a personal basis. And of course, there's always that need to maintain a public face as opposed to the the interface. So there was a lot of parallels. Cindy, what kind of things are on your mind as the co-director of, of a theatrical company right now when you're choosing your plays and you're looking at what to devote all this time and energy and money into? What, what are the important factors on your mind right now in this still pandemic world? Our basic mission at The Rogue is always to produce great literature so that when people come to see a play, they can go home with the play, with something that um, enlivens them, something that they can reflect on beyond the end of the evening. And Mrs. Dalloway definitely does that. And so it's, it's something that's very substantial, that's very rich, that people will be thinking about, I think, for a long time after they see the show. There are some interesting parallels. The The book was published in 1925. That was after the Spanish flu, which claimed um, hundreds of thousands of lives in uh, Great Britain. 
The play takes place in London. And also it's between the two world wars and people are still reflecting on what happened in World War One, and still wondering uh, what that was about and still suffering the consequences of it. And so our current moment right now, um, having got through hopefully most of the pandemic and also the war that's raging in the Ukraine right now is really something for us to um, reflect on and see the parallels from a hundred years ago. Well, I understand that now we're going to hear a short excerpt from the adaptation uh, performed by Cynthia Jeffrey and Joe McGrath. Uh, Would you like to set this up for us, Cindy? This is um, a moment that takes place entirely in Clarissa Dalloway's mind. She's remembering Peter when they were younger and This is her reflection on it, and Joe's going to um, portray Peter's part of it. Really, the whole thing takes place in Clarissa Dalloway's mind. I remember scene after scene at Borton, Peter furious. Of course, Hugh was not Peter's match in any way, but still, he's not a positive imbecile as Peter made out. He's a mere barber's block. (laughs) When his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to bath, he did so. Without a word, he was really unselfish. He has no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman. Peter could be impossible, but adorable. To walk with on a morning like this. June has drawn out every leaf on the trees. Arlington Street and Piccadilly seem to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves. On waves of that divine vitality which you love. (laughs) For we might be parted for hundreds of years, Peter and I. You never wrote a letter. And your letters were dry sticks. But if you were with me now, what would you say? However beautiful the day might be, and the trees, and the grass, and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles if I told him to. He would look. But it was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner. Pope's poetry. People's characters and the defects of your soul. How he scolded me. How we argued. You will marry a prime minister and stand at the top of a staircase. The perfect hostess. I cried over his words in my bedroom. You have the makings of the perfect hostess. Thanks to actors Cynthia Jeffrey and Joseph McGrath, and the play's director and adapter Cindy Meyer. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf runs at the Rogue Theater, located in the historic Y on University Boulevard, through May 15th. Tucsonan Susan Cummins Miller identifies as a geologist and an author of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Her collection, Making Silent Stones Sing, connects these pursuits with ley lines of both attention and intention. I started by asking her how that came to be. I think it's a chicken and an egg thing. I was raised in a family of storytellers, poets, and writers. So it was never something odd for me. We heard poetry around the dinner table. We heard poetry around the campfire. We recited it. And when I was nine, I started writing poetry, none of which, thank heavens, has survived. And then I got more and more into the things I was studying, and there wasn't any time. 
So I put it aside. But I think the need to pay attention, which is what links the two for me, you're paying attention to what's in place when you're a poet. You're paying attention to place from the standpoint of what is physically there when you're doing geology and paleontology. Gathering clues at the surface of the earth, you're extrapolating backwards in time to create a story of what happened in that place over time, the fourth dimension. And I think you're exploring through poetry in a, in a really similar fashion. Those two fields were never at odds. It was just one would be in the background. Please share with us a poem from your recent collection called Making Silent Stones Sing. The poem I'm going to read is called The Bone Man's Apprentice. Between Route 66 and the Old Spanish Trail, we hiked serrated ridges, discovering a cache of fossil bones preserved on a limey sandstone ledge in the heart of the Mojave. Under your watchful eye, I chiseled away the barren protective strata, exposing teeth and dimpled bone, a horse's skull no longer than my hand, concealed for 18 million years. With clear drops of gliptol, I sealed the fragile fragments. You showed me how to swaddle the delicate palate in layers of TP, how to mix the plaster of Paris. I poured tepid canteen water into the dented basin, added pale gray powder that smelled like kindergarten, warmed numb fingers in the exothermic reaction, dipped strips of rough brown burlap in the thick white soup. Laughing, we smoothed the gooey paste on fossil and rock pedestal, our fingers and forearms taking on the virginal hue until neither of us could identify where our bodies ended and the sun-bleached hills began. Well, one of the simple joys you get to experience in the poetry in this book is using words of science like glyptol <laughs> in your poetry. I mean, even Plaster of Paris, which is something we probably all had some kind of experience with, it's a little bit of vocabulary that many poets don't get to use. It's true. It doesn't matter what field you're entering, but let's take geology and paleontology. It is a vocabulary not everyone speaks. But to access the experience, it's helpful to be able to bring in things we use like burlap, which everybody knows, plaster of Paris, which our children used to put handprints in to give their mothers on Mother's Day, right? Those things people can access easily with their vocabulary, whatever it is. And their tactile memory. And their tactile memory, which is important. Being a scientist and being a poet, it's accessing in the present, using all the senses to investigate, to experience that particular moment. 
I would like for you to read for us again from the book. Ah, I'm going to read the eponymous poem, Making Silent Stones Sing. One. Picture Rocks Canyon. Paisley scarlet bandana caught on gray thornbush, sprouting from naked rock. Lavender blooming ironwoods, swift zebra-tailed lizards, and always the cactus wrens for company. Two. If you sit where basalt layers first enter the canyon, clear your mind Focus on nothing. You'll discover a faint figure pecked in black patina, elongated body, arms upraised, feet planted firmly on nothing but ground mass. Nearby, inscribed on other smooth outcrops, circles and loops, squares and rectangles, Messages left by archaic writers. How many hundred times have you trudged by without stopping, intent on completing the loop trail, a metaphorical circle, beginning and ending in your room? 3. Note to Self if it is the journey that matters and not the arbitrary destination, then remember the magic in this impromptu stop. And before you leave, place your hand on the petroglyphs. Acknowledge the spark leaping artist to artist and making silent stones sing. Susan Cummins Miller is the author of Making Silent Stones Sing, published by Finishing Line Press. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. This month, she's celebrating the release of her book, Ain't That a Mother? And next, we'll hear an excerpt about the first big step in her journey to motherhood. This segment includes some frank talk about reproductive choice. Nelson is an independent contributor to the show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. This is Adiba Nelson, and I am reading an excerpt from my new book, Ain't That a Mother?, published by Blackstone Publishing, 2022. I'm pregnant, and thus began the most awkward and uncomfortable silence ever to exist in the history of awkward and uncomfortable silences. He stared at me, and I stared at my burger. We sat there, not moving, probably not breathing, and definitely not making eye contact for what felt like an eternity. In reality, it was more like two minutes. Finally, Jeff broke the silence, doing the thing that dudes always do when they're shocked that procreation actually happened. Huh. You sure? What? Are you sure you're pregnant? You took a test? No, I licked my thumb and stuck it in the air. Yes, I took a test, but I thought you took plan B. 
I did take Plan B. You watched me take it in the clinic parking lot with my Diet Coke. Now, y'all, I need to pause here. Just let's pause because I can't in good faith and certainly not in the name of sweet black baby Jesus go on one step further without sharing some very pertinent information with you that surely would have come in handy had it been written in big bold letters on the box of plan B 12 years ago. Come close friends. Y'all ready for this? Plan B doesn't work if you weigh more than 155 pounds. Did you get that? I'll say it one more time in case your brain just short-circuited like mine did when I found out this information 12 years after I had my child. Plan B does not work if you weigh more than 155 pounds. Ain't that something? Who in the... What in the... Mm. How in the holy hell do they not advertise this right on the box? Well, okay, maybe I'm being a bit dramatic here. It's not that it doesn't work per se. It's just less effective if you're over 155 pounds or have a BMI over 30. Less effective? What does that even mean? Less effective is what you say when you want to tell someone that their hair gel won't work as well if it is applied to dry hair. Or that their tires won't stop as well in the rain if they're balding. Less effective is not what you say to someone when the possible outcome is a whole baby. Also, how is that even a thing that you don't plaster all over the box? Or announce in a commercial? I feel like this whole brand new to me information could be and probably should be a skit on Saturday Night Live. Big girl goes to Walgreens to plan for a sexy night in. Big girl arrives at the cash register with two bottles of wine, a can of whipped cream, a blindfold, and a box of Plan B. As she's checking out, the cashier picks up the box and looks at her. Big girl sheepishly grins and says, You know, for just in case. And the cashier takes one look at her and says, "Uh Uh-uh, honey, this won't work for you. Take this and I'll see you in nine months with newborn diapers and a pacifier at the register. Sis, you need to just go on ahead and double up on those Trojan Macs. I promise you, if I was said big girl, I would be thanking God on high for making me visibly fat so that I could be spared a pregnancy I might not be ready for. But since that didn't happen, I'm sharing this brand new to me information with you. Big girls, don't do it. Don't mess around and say don't stop and then think plan B will save your behind because it will not. Use a condom, use VCF, or some other kind of spermicide, but do not, I repeat, do not rely on plan B. You're welcome. Carry on. Adiba Nelson's memoir, Ain't That a Mother, is a new release from Blackstone Publishing. In March of this year, the Tucson community lost a very bright light, one who had committed much of her life to helping individuals and their families not only heal from addiction, but also to overcome adversity through communication, honesty, and grace. Her name was Naya Arbiter, and here to share some memories is her longtime friend and co-worker, Robin Retmer, in an interview with AZPM contributor Itai Sofer. I met Naya in the early 1980s. We were working with uh, troubled kids. 
not so much addiction, but just a lot of behavior problems, inner-city gang kids, you know, kids coming out of uh, juvenile detention centers around the country. I was in a place a few years later where I was so exhausted with working with people, particularly young kids with a lot of energy, and I had decided to not work in human services or social services again. I ran across Naya. She had moved back to Tucson, and she had started Amity. There was an ad in the paper. I guess Amity was failing. It was very small. It was kind of uh, a lot of the staff and the students there were using drugs. Naya answered an ad in the paper for a new executive director. And she met with the board of directors there, and they gave her 90 days to either turn this place around or, you know, we're going to close it. And, of course, Naya was able to get it back on track. And she kept bugging me about, you've got to come out and see what I'm doing. And I kept telling her, no, I'm really not interested in working with people again. I was really exhausted after many years of working with young kids. And the long story short, she convinced me to come to um, Amity's Circle Tree Ranch property here in Tucson. I went out there with her. She gave me a tour. We met a bunch of the students and the staff who were there getting help. And uh, I've been there ever since. <laughs> so that was 36 years ago. Nye and I have worked together that entire time. The vision for her went way past just having people stop using drugs. Her vision was to make people better human beings, better citizens, better global citizens. So she went about, again, looking at the issues behind drug addiction, and there are so many. She and I both shared a real passion for um, family systems and healing not only the person in need, but healing the families as well. How does that process take place? We had very active uh, weekly family support groups. They got to know each other in a circle group setting. Eventually, we would add their uh, loved ones who were there with us getting help into those circles and just start open communication with the families, a lot of times with families. The person who's using drugs is the problem, the identified problem. (laughs) And if they would just stop using drugs, then everything would be everything. And we went about the business of identifying what everybody's issues were because everybody has to own a piece of someone's, um, you know, kind of wayward behavior. And everybody has to be willing to shift a little bit in their thinking, and they have to be able to learn how to really listen to each other. Just lastly, um, I wanted to know um, if you have any particular memories or anything that you might want to share with us that um, that come to mind. Nye and I shared a great love for the physical environment at all of Amity, all the group rooms, all of the rooms where the dormitories and where folks lived, all of our offices. And I spent many, many, many years, the two of us, uh, on ladders, climbing up and down, hanging this and decorating that. <laughs> <laughs> 
people would ask us who we were, and, you know, we would just say, ah, we're just here moving some furniture. (laughs) She would always say, I'm just the furniture lady. And, of course, she was, you know, the founder and had created so much of the emotional climate for Amity. I still get emotional. Uh, I'm missing her terribly. Uh, She was not just about Amity. She was about many, many, many global issues, Um, um, you know, justice reform, um, the environment, the world. And she made a point to make sure that every single person, the staff included, that came to Amity were educated in not only current issues, but also involving racism and civil rights. She was just an incredible human advocate for everyone she came in contact to. Naya was a part of the World Federation of Therapeutic Communities Movement, the European Federation. She was on numerous White House councils. I mean, she was someone who worked hard at making an impact. Itai Sofer talked with Robin Redmer, who shared memories of her friend Naya Arbiter, who died on March 3rd at age 69. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.